Ed Gein. For more than a century, the movies have brought our most vivid nightmares to life. Often the fear is conjured from fantasy, from imagining the unimaginable. But it's even more frightening when the demons are real. Norman Bates and Psycho. Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Buffalo Bill and Silence of the Lambs. Each of these characters were not dreamed up, but rather inspired by the real man. His name was Ed Gein, and tonight we take you down one of the most disturbing and terrifying real-life horror stories you could ever conjure in your dreams. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I do want to say before we go too far down this particular road, this one's going to be a little gruesome. So if you, yeah. you have a problem with with morbid imagery, uh, we're going to touch on on murder. We're going to touch on body mutilation. We're going to touch on grave robbing and and you know if if you're torture, uh, just yeah. If, if you can't handle the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and movies like that, this may be one to skip. And I, I will say, and we are listening to our listeners, uh, we have had many requests to start picking up and doing more serial killers. So uh, this is yet another installment of uh, <laughs> what you guys have requested. Well, and, and like you said, unfortunately, we can't really label Mr. Gein as a serial, serial killer. killer. That's right. He didn't He didn't kill enough people, yeah. which is a horrifying statement to actually yeah, use. He, yeah. Let's, uh, let's dig into this creepy dude. Plainfield, Wisconsin is where this story actually starts. 1957. It's the home to about 700 people. Uh, In today's population, it has increased to about 849. Uh, The man we're going to be talking about tonight is Edward Theodore Gein. Uh, He was actually born in La Crosse, Wisconsin, uh, just a little kind of southwest of uh, Plainfield. Uh, He was born in 1906. His father was an alcoholic. Uh, but a former grocery store owner there in La Crosse, Wisconsin. His mother was Augusta. She was a very devout religious woman. Uh, some might even say fanatical and uh, demeanoring. Now, Augusta, Mother Augusta, pushed the family to sell the grocery store uh, when Ed was only eight years old. And she insisted the town was full of sin, literally like Sodom and Gomorrah. That, that seemed to be a, a sticking point for Augusta. She basically thought all women were just harlots and sluts. Yes. And, and, and just full of sin and vice. And she, uh, after, after they sold the business, they, they moved to a 155-acre farm in the Plainfield, Wisconsin area. That became the family's permanent residence. And she took advantage of the isolation to kind of preach at the boys and, and oh, yes. hammer home this idea that women were, were horrible and, and, and terrible and just a corrupting influence. To me, I thought that was a little strange because in, in similar stories that you read, many of the women that are so devout, fanatical, religious, they often believe the man is, you know, the sin. Um 
and I won't get into all the gruesome details, but uh, certain parts of the man uh, anatomy, you know, is even tortured and, you know, that kind of stuff. So it was really weird for me to hear this, that she felt the woman was yeah, it, the seed of evil, if you will. Yeah, it's really strange. And especially because, I mean, her being a woman. You yeah, know? yeah. So, uh, but yeah, apparently the the boys, uh, uh, Ed and her, his brother would only. Henry. Yeah, his brother Henry. They would only leave the, the family farm to attend school and that was it. And they only attended, I believe, up to the seventh grade. And anytime they would try to have friends over to the house or anything, uh, Mama Augustus would quickly usher them off and shun them and tell the boys that, you know, there's no good here. Don't yeah. you know, don't have friends. You can't trust them, and you know, especially girls and, and women. Yeah, she was uh, fervently religious, like you said, nominally Lutheran. She constantly preached to the boys about the innate immorality of the world, the evils of drinking, her belief that all women, except for herself, were pers- promiscuous and instruments of the devil. She reserved time every day to read to them from the Bible, and she preferred verses from the Old Testament and, and Book of Revelation, uh, especially those concerning death, murder, and divine retribution. I mean, she was a gloom and doom. Fire and brimstone type. She definitely, uh, from what I understood, uh, was very dominating, not only with the boys, but even with her husband. uh, Who who she hated, who I mentioned. Yeah, just despised him. Which I guess he was an alcoholic and was barely able to keep jobs. And maybe being married to someone like that might give you (laughs) a reason to. Might drive you to drink. But uh, I did find a couple incidences, and I think this might help shed a little bit of light on Ed as, as he matures here. She would intervene uh, when the father would come home intoxicated and drunk and sounded like in a very battered family surrounding. She would intervene and protect the boys, especially Ed being the youngest from uh, his father. And so I think there was kind of this very strange relationship that started very early. As you said, she demanded that nobody be around the house. She kept her boys safe and sheltered, not only from, from dad, but the outside world. And Ed respected her for that. I mean, kind of put her up on a, a pedestal by all means. And, and yeah, she a was love a love-hate relationship, kind of. She was a very important figure in his life. Now, Ed himself, he was shy. Uh, classmates and teachers remembered him as having very strange mannerisms when he was in public. Uh, he would seemingly laugh at random as if laughing at some internal joke. Yeah, sat over at a table by himself and kind of yeah. carry on conversations. Like you said, she, she, Augusta, punished them when they would try to make friends. And, but despite poor social development, uh, Ed did do fairly well in school, uh, and he particularly excelled at reading. So, On April 1st, 1940, his father died of heart failure related to his alcoholism at the age of 66. At that point in time, Henry and Ed began doing odd jobs around town to help cover living expenses. And from what I understand, they were very handy. Uh, they, I mean, both were intelligent, uh, very hardworking, good morals could help out whether it be chopping firewood uh helping on farms i even found where ed actually babysat yep. children uh in in the town babysat for the the neighbors and he seemed to enjoy babysitting uh it seemed like he identified more with children than he did with adults uh yeah the boys were considered uh, to be reliable and honest in the the, the area so they, they had a pretty good reputation and they were they were helpful at some point, Henry began dating a divorced mother of two, and he had planned to move in with her. I'm sure that didn't go over well with yeah. Mama. Yeah, no, he and he he was worried about his brother's attachment to their mother at this point in time. He saw that you know there the women didn't have to be like that, and there could be a life outside their home. And he started to speak ill about their mother around Ed, and and that bothered Ed. That he responded yeah. with shock, and 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 
that hurt his feelings. You know, he didn't, he couldn't believe you, you talked bad you about mama. Yes, yeah. And, and this may be the beginning of, of of the history that eventually becomes Ed's story, the part that everybody knows. On, on May 16th, 1944, uh, Henry and Ed were burning uh, some vegetation on the property that they, that they lived on uh, there at the farm when the fire got out of control and it drew the attention of the local fire department. By the end of the day, the fire department had, of course, extinguished the fire. And after all the firefighters had gone, Ed reported his brother missing. Yes. I have no idea where he's at. Yeah, I don't know where, where he's at. We just got separated out. in the smoke. So with lanterns and flashlights, a search party was assembled and they set out to look for Henry. What they did find was Henry laying face down on the ground. And ironically, Ed took them right to oh, his body. I didn't see that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, apparently, I don't know where he's at, but yeah. yeah, he's right here. Yeah. Apparently, Henry had been dead for some time and the apparent cause of death was heart failure. And, and said at the time he had not been burned or otherwise injured. But I believe later on it was revealed that he did have bruising on his on his head. On his head. Mm-hmm. And it's possible. I mean, honestly, already at this point, it sounds like there's some foul play here. A little bit of animosity towards uh, brother speaking out against yeah, Mama Augustus. Be, yeah. Now, now the police did dismiss the possibility of foul play. Again, these boys had a good reputation. Why would you think anything bad had happened? Again, very small rural town. There was a fire. Yep. Yep. Accidents happened. The the county coroner officially listed cause of death as asphyxiation. So the assumption is he he got caught in the smoke. I would assume from the fire. The authorities accepted this uh, this theory, and uh, no official ga- investigation was ever conducted, no uh, autopsy ever performed. Yeah. So They felt there was no reason to. Yeah, again. And again, the boys were trustworthy. People thought they were okay, you know. And really, Ed leads a pretty quiet life for the most part, and things go fairly uneventful, and I'm going to say that in quotes, because while Ed was engaging in certain activities during this time frame, nothing was really known. He was pretty quiet. He kept to himself. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, you know, he stayed busy, you know, did some odd jobs here and there is my understanding. But now Ed and mother were alone together, if you will. Yeah. So he had the full infatuation of his, of his mom. Yeah. And I hate to maybe go on a limb and say this, but brother out of the way, father yeah. previously out of the way. Yeah. And, and really, um, some experts say that this was sort of the, the Cain and Abel moment for, for Ed. And this was where his, his, he started killing but again, you know, there was never any issues brought up. I mean, uh, later on during during the questioning about the one of the deaths he was involved in, mm-hmm. a, a state investigator did ask him about Henry's death. But again, even at that point, he was denying any involvement in it. So after death of brother Henry, him and his mother are now alone. And Augusta had a, a paralyzing stroke shortly after Henry's death. And he had devoted himself to taking care of her at that point. Yep. And then sometimes. Literally worshipped the ground. She yep. walked on, cared for everything. Now, an interesting story that does come out of this time frame is, is sometime in, in 1945, Ed recounted a story that he and his mother had visited a man named Smith. Uh, he lived nearby, and they had gone over there to purchase some straw for the farm. And according to, to Gein, uh, Augusta witnessed Smith beating a dog while he was there. And and a woman came from inside the Smith home, and she yells. She's like, stop beating the dog. You know, she's yelling at him for beating this dog. And, and eventually, Smith beats this dog to death right in front of Gein and his mother. Wow, that's dramatic. Now, Augusta seemed very upset about this episode, but, but what Ed said was strange is the brutality towards the dog is not what bothered her. It was the fact that there was a woman there. <laughs> and Augusta told Ed that that woman was not married to Smith. She had no business being there and referred back, to her angrily as back Smith's to this harlot. Whole thing again. Yeah. Yes, here we go. She had a second stroke not long after that. Her health deteriorated rapidly at that point. And uh, Augusta died on December 29th, 1945. But uh, she was age 67 at that point. 
and this shocked Ed. This this devastated Ed. This ruined Ed's world. You know, he'd been dedicated to his yeah. mother, and he was a mama's boy. And obviously, I mean, you might well, say there was a touch of Stockholm syndrome. Even she, maybe she had her entire life literally underlined his manhood. And uh, if I may, at, at her funeral, this was very apparent and evident. I guess he broke down. Uh, dropped to his knees, like kicked, screamed, behaved, they said, like a elementary school child, you know, screaming out literally for his mommy. Yeah. After her death, in the words of author Harold Schechter, uh, Ed felt as if he had, quote, lost his only friend and one true love, and he was absolutely alone in this world. One true love. That part just is creepy. It I'm is. sorry. That's just creepy. So so Ed, um, he held on to the family farm, and he earned money from doing odd jobs, like I said earlier. He boarded up the rooms that had been used by his mother. That included the upstairs, the downstairs parlor, and the living room. And he left them absolutely untouched. They were pristine. Uh, meanwhile, the rest of the house became increasingly squalid. There are pictures online from the inside of the yes. house when he was arrested, and the house is absolutely Guys, it's like awful. the worst episodes of Hoarders yeah. that you can imagine. But no matter how bad those other parts of the house got, those rooms that he blocked off that were his mother's were pristine, perfect. Pristine, well-kept. Uh, he lived... In a small room next to the kitchen was where he, he made his home. And uh, he became interested in reading pulp magazines and adventure stories, particularly those involving cannibals and Nazi atrocities. Well. So the guy's interest did take a turn for the for the worst. He was a, he we, like I said, he did handyman work and he received a farm subsidy from the government starting in 1951. Now, he would occasionally work for local road crews and crop threshing crews doing things that he knew. And then sometime between 46 and 56, he sold off 80 acres of land that had been, would have been his brother's part of the inheritance. So, I mean, 80 acres is a good piece of land, even by those standards, you know, sure, those, those sure. day standards. Now, you got to remember, I mean, during this time frame, here this man is, lost his father, lost his brother, lost his mother, had been completely isolated his entire life. Nothing of that has changed. His mom had left him terrified to have any relationship with a, a woman or much less even another guy as a friend living in kind of this dilapidated old farmhouse. Living in squalor. Literally kind of falling down around him. Uh, as you said, the pictures online show where he stayed there in the kitchen and there was like a little wood burning furnace or, or stove there that I'm assuming, you know, he kind of huddled in to try to stay warm during the winters. Well, I think it's the new, uh, the remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre starts with like crime scene photos of the house. And I mean, seriously, if you've seen Texas Chainsaw, you have an idea of what it looked like. And I mean, and I mean that in the most disturbing way possible. I know some of the things in Texas Chainsaw are fairly gruesome. As we get down here, I've got a list of the things they found they in found, his home. Yeah, yeah. It's awful. But again, this house didn't even have electricity. I mean, so this, this guy... Wow. I mean, just kind of living in total isolation, watching yeah. his, his life crumble down around him. So the beginning of Ed Gein's downfall happens the morning of November 16th, 1957. Uh, Plainfield hardware store owner Bernice Warden had disappeared. And this was the first day of deer season, I might add, in the rural town. Yeah. A, a local reported that the store's truck had been driven out from the rear of the building that day around 9.30 a.m., the, there were very few customers that tried to come to the store that day. Some area residents believed, um, of course, that it was closed because it was deer hunting season. Mm -hmm. Like literally every red-blooded American male in the town was out in the woods deer yeah. hunting. Now, due to some unfortunate luck, maybe, Bernice Warden's son was Deputy Sheriff Frank Warden of the area. And he decided uh, to visit Mom, and so he entered the store, and it was around 5 o'clock p.m. At that point, he finds the store's cash register open mm -hmm. and bloodstains on the floor. 
So he told investigators that the evening before her disappearance that the Ga- Ed Gein had been seen in the store. Mm-hmm. He was supposed to return the next day for a gallon of antifreeze. And at this point in time, Ed is 51 years of age. I'll throw that in there. Uh, now, there's a sell slip for a gallon of antifreeze, and uh, it, that was the last receipt written by Warden on the morning she disappeared. The, that evening of the same day, Gein was arrested at, the, at a West Plainfield grocery store. And at that point in time, and I'm going to maybe say this name wrong, the Washara County Sheriff's Department picks him up and they decide they're going to investigate his farm. The man's doing his grocery shopping in town and here come the police and arrest him and take him away. Yeah, obviously he's a person of interest, so they decide they're going to go out to the farm. Now. And that's when it apparently starts. Now I'm going to say this takes a turn. And so again, things get pretty gruesome from here on out. alert. So a sheriff's deputy... Uh, upon upon entering the property, discovers Warden's decapitated body in a shed. She's hung upside down by her legs with a crossbar at her ankles. There are ropes at her wrist. She's been dressed out like a deer, in quotes. Uh, she had been shot with a twenty two caliber rifle, and it is obvious that these mutilations of her body were made after her death. Now, if you've been keeping track of local events, that sounds a little familiar. That sounds very familiar to what we have going on right here in nearby Pulaski County. And and we, I think we intend to address that with an episode later on after, you know, we, we want to be respectful about the situation, obviously. Yeah, definitely. But, but that does sound similar to some recent events here. Now, I do have a little insert I'll, I'll throw in. Uh, later on during the investigation and, and the court hearings and, and the psychologists that were all brought online, they questioned Ed uh, about this, and he said, I do remember looking at a twenty two rifle in the store. Yeah. I do remember her handing me the bullets to put in it. And some people will say, well, right there, he's loading a gun. But again, people, this was a different time. It wouldn't be that uncommon to check your ammunition in a gun. It sounds really weird in today's you, you time frame. You can go into Bass Pro and buy guns and carry them with you. Buy ammunition in the store yeah. and carry it with you to this day. So, so it's not a, it like sounds that, that weird. Sounds but it's, weird, but it's not it's not as weird as you think. But he even kind of suggested that he doesn't ever remember aiming the twenty two well uh, and, and at her. Doesn't remember shooting her. This pattern so of not remembering a maybe it was an accidental discharge. And then yeah. you just took her home and dressed her out like a deer and hung her upside down. <laughs> Well, and again, as he's interrogated, investigated, interrogated may not be the right word, but this this pattern of not remembering certain events does yes, come up. Yes. Now, when authorities searched the house, there was an inventory. And um, again, again, no electricity. They're going in with lanterns and flashlights, guys. And and again, I don't know if you want to say trigger warning or what, but, yeah, but warning, here, here's warning. the list of what they found in the home. Whole human bones and fragments thereof. A waste basket made of human skin, human skin covering several chair seats. Very nicely upholstered, yes. uh, according to the pictures and where I'm read. Skulls on his bedpost, female skulls, some with the top sawed off, bowls made from human skulls, a corset made from a human torso, skin from shoulders to waist, leggings made from human skin, masks made from the skin of female heads, Mary Hogan's face mask in a paper bag, and her name will come up a little bit later again. Mary Hogan's skull in a box, Bernice Warden's entire head in a burlap sack, Bernice Warden's heart in a plastic bag in front of Gein's pot-bellied stove, even the, these next few are even hard for me to, nine vulva in a, vulva, I guess maybe is the pearl, in a, in a shoe box, a young girl's dress, and the vulvas of two females judged to have been about 15 years old, 
a belt made from female human nipples, nipples. Yes. Four noses, a pair of lips on a window shade drawstring, a lampshade made from the skin of a human face. I'm sorry, that one just, wow. Yeah. Or fingernails from female fingers. Now, when I compare this to Texas Chainsaw, you can see how Texas Chainsaw was inspired by this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, I mean, disturbing. Texas Chainsaw is a movie. You can watch that and say, okay, this isn't real and that's fine. But understand that Texas Chainsaw was heavily inspired by the story of Mr. Ed Gein. And so those things, the photographs from the movie are fine. When the cops investigated, that's what they really found. Well, and then again, as I referred to in the opening, you know, Norman Bates and Psycho obviously yeah. is the relationship between Ed and his mom, where it is Norman and his mom. And then, of course, Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs, he is doing a lot of those same things. He's, you know, skinning, has facial masks, making a body. You have the the Firefly family from Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses and and Devil's Rejects. Again, the things you see in those movies, I mean, they they were taken from this. Directly from this. Really disturbing stuff. Now, of course, all these items were photographed at the at the state crime lab and then, in quotes, decently disposed of. Decently disposed of. I'm assuming they were, like, buried, at least given some last rites. Now, when questioned, Ed Gein told investigators that between 1947 and 1952, he had made as many as 40 nocturnal visits to three local graveyards. And this is where, obviously, the, some confusion comes in about him being a serial yeah, killer. Yeah, he didn't kill people for he, the most part. Technically, he had, I think, two, two. Two, possibly three deaths attributed to him. But you you heard Bill's list of multiple skulls yeah. and, and organs and, and, and stuff. So, yeah, that, that came from borrowing those items from unfortunate yeah. dead people. But, yeah, he said he made as many as 40 visits to local graveyards at night. Um, and with the intent to exhume recently buried bodies while he was there. and But he claimed he was in a daze-like state. Like, again, he wasn't in control of what he was doing. He was in a... Now, he even stated he talked himself out of it. You said like 30 or 40 visits and like maybe 20 of those, he, he would go to the graveyard and then have conversations with himself and kind of talk himself out yeah, of it and, he, and return home with nothing. Yeah, he said on at least 30 of these trips, he, he came to himself while he was at the cemetery. And now I dove into this a little bit more and I'm like, okay... What, what gives? Why, why this? And of course the belief is he's trying to find victims, whether dead or alive, that resembled in some way his yep. mother. That, and that it uh, was, he was looking for the graves of recently buried middle-aged women that he, he felt resembled her. And then you might ask, well, he's isolated. How well is he going to know what that person looks like? Well, that was answered by an interview to one of the local citizens who knew and, and grew up around Ed, remembers him fondly, said Ed would always be the type, if you would see him about, he would come over and talk with you and, and chat and, and said he was a little bit odd, but he was always very friendly, uh, but said he started this deal where he would show up at the funerals and literally he was staking out who he felt looked like his mother and who might be a potential for lack of a better term, dig me up victim. So this is creepy, creepy stuff. I mean, here this guy is uh, attending funerals, you know, scoping out dead victims. Yeah, kind of gruesome. So he admitted to stealing from at least nine graves in the local cemeteries, and he led investigators right to those um, those locations. Mm-hmm. They did open the, the graves. Uh, they opened three test graves just to see. Yeah. Is this guy pulling our leg or is he you yeah. know, legit? And, and two of those graves, I believe, were found to be empty. 
and uh, it was clearly that the bo- clear that the bodies had been disturbed. And that so, was another thing when they investigated him or was questioning him. He didn't deny any of it. No, he was. Oh yeah, I did that. I, I dug this grave up and this one over here, and at the, there was apparently three different graveyards in the vicinity. And like you said, he just freely, I'll show you, you know, I'll take you right there. Never made any excuses, just acted like it was common. Apparently soon after his mother's death, he had begun to create what he called a woman suit. And so that he could, he could become his mother to literally crawl inside her skin. Uh, He denied having sex with any of the bodies. He said they were, they were too gross. They smelled too bad. Smelled too bad. Uh, He also admitted to the shooting death of Mary Hogan, who was a tavern owner who had been missing since 1954 and whose head had been found in his home, but he'd later denied any memory of the details of his death. Again, he seems to black out when he actually commits his crimes. Now, there was a lot of talk about her, presumably his first victim, and she had the same build as his mother. However, she was kind of the total opposite. Here, his mom, a devout religious fanatic, and then here the bar owner, Mary Hogan, was a bar owner, (laughs) Um, apparently they said she cussed like a sailor was a very rough and gruff type, kind of the total yin and yang opposite, if you will. Yeah. So maybe that's what triggered him to kill her was he felt that was an animosity, a total opposite of his mother. Yeah. A 16 year old youth whose parents were friends of Gein, uh, they reported that he, he said he kept shrunken heads in his house and he described them as relics that he had gotten from the Philippines. They were sent by a cousin who had served on the islands during World War II. Well, upon investigation, these were determined to be human facial skins that he himself had had carefully peeled from corpses, and he would use them as masks. Well, so, one thing I don't think we mentioned, his father, while he did own a grocery store, was a tanner. Yes. Uh, so it would make sense that the boys, you know, Ed and his brother Henry, um, had been exposed to that and well, probably lot, had some knowledge and how these to tan hides. Had, yeah, a lot of these skins had been treated in tan, like you said, with the chairs, you, they would be almost indistinguishable from a leather chair. Yes, yeah, it wasn't like so, they were, this is going to get gruesome, but like fleshy and yeah. rotting, they were properly tanned. So he was uh, considered a suspect in several other unsolved cases in the area or in even the greater state of Wisconsin. Uh, there was a 1953 disappearance of an Evelyn Hartley, uh, a babysitter uh, in La Crosse, uh, but obviously he he wasn't involved in that. Again, we say he wasn't a serial killer. He technically didn't kill enough people unless you count his brother. I think a serial killer has to kill at least three people. Yeah, yeah. During questioning, the Washara County Sheriff Art Shelley uh, apparently assaulted Ed. He banged oh, yes. his head and face into a brick wall. And as a result, obviously, his initial confessions were, Out the were door. inadmissible in court. And this guy, uh, the officer, I guess, I mean, you can imagine some of the things officers walk into, but. Truthfully, I don't think anybody can imagine. Yeah, and especially know, for a small town area. Yeah, this this officer obviously kind of snapped, yep. and uh, th- they even said when they went into that shed that was built on kind of an outdoor kitchen area for for dressing deer or whatever, the the police officers went in with a flashlight, and at a glance they they shined the flashlight and saw this corpse hanging, and they thought it was a deer. I yeah. mean, it is during deer season, and then once they realized what they were looking at. They both just ran out and asked for help. I mean, they were puking their guts up and, and yeah. screaming. I, that the, these guys traumatic. weren't ready. They weren't ready for that. Well, I said Shelley, and the name is actually Art Schley. I want to correct that. Now, uh, he did die of heart failure uh, at age forty-three in nineteen sixty-eight before Ed went to trial. And many who knew him, many who knew him said he'd never really recovered from the things he had seen. And he had he had 
he was still carrying that with him. And he's the one that grabbed Ed's head and basically bashed it into yeah. a wall. And, and, yeah. and he didn't even, he didn't want to have to testify either. He knew that it would tarnish his reputation talking about what he had done to Gein, let alone the things he had seen. Again, he's trying to put it all behind him. Yeah. Uh, one of his friends is quoted as saying, uh, quote, he was a victim of Ed Gein as surely as exactly. if he had butchered him himself. Yeah, exactly. So November 21st, 1957, uh, Gein is arraigned on one count of first degree murder in Washara County Court. And he pleads not guilty by reason of insanity. He's diagnosed with schizophrenia and found to be mentally incompetent. And he is subsequently sent to the Central State Hospital for the criminally insane. So one of the few times that the, you know, not guilty by reason of insanity applies. Obviously, there was something seriously, seriously wrong, with, wrong him. with him. Yes. Now, that hospital for the criminally insane is now known as the Dodge Correctional Institution. It's a maximum security facility in Wapen, Wisconsin. He's later transferred to the Mendota State Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. I think about 10 years passed during his time. Yeah, 1968. Doctors uh, talked to Ed again, and they determined he is mentally able to confer with counsel and participate in his own defense. Now, I want to intervene here. Um, some of the people that, that knew Ed in the town, uh, again, they spoke very fondly of him. They were totally just shocked, appalled that this happened, but he had no structure in his life. So by being admitted into the psychiatric ward, it kind of gave him what he didn't have. He yeah. had a, a, you know, a, what's the word I'm looking for? A routine. A routine, yes, every day that would follow. Uh, he had, you know, set meals, bedtimes. Uh, he had people that cared for him, that looked after him. Yeah. One of the nurses, I guess you would say, that that cared for him uh, remembers, you know, he, he kept to himself uh, there in the psychiatric ward, although they did allow them out and, and time to socialize. He remembers playing uh, card games with Ed and said later on in the years, he would just kind of sit like in the sunroom area and just stare off into nothingness. Like maybe it was all starting to click and he was understanding some of the things that he, he yeah. had went through and done, but it gave him that time to kind of process. And I mean, sounds like he did get better to some degree at least. Better. And again, it could be a case, even though where, where they were kind of pressured to find him competent yeah. because people want to see justice oh, in a yes. case like this. And that turned the, the town upside down. I mean, they had tourists coming to the town and oh, yeah. trying yeah. to find the house and the locations. And, and one local man said that uh, like once a week, somebody from out of town or out of state would come through and they'd stop at the local restaurant and they'd order like the Ed Gein special, <laughs> you know, just... You know, not very Morbid. tasteful, yeah, at all. Well, like you said, in 68, he was found able to confer with counsel and participate in his defense, and his trial began on November 7th, 1968, and lasted for one week. During that time, a psychiatrist testified that Gein had told him that he did not know whether the killing of Bernice Warden had been intentional or accidental. Like we said earlier, he, he remembers examining the gun. Mm-hmm. He, the gun apparently went off and killed her. He remembers loading the gun. He remembers loading it. He remembers the discharge. He, he does not remember aiming the rifle at her. He does not remember anything else after that happened. So again, it's one of those, you know, I, I remember these things happening, but then I blacked out. I don't remember what happened after that. And maybe in his case, you know, if you shoot and kill something, the next step is to go and field dress it. So yeah. Yeah. So the request of the defense is trial was held without a jury, which seems weird to me. I'm not sure. I thought we were supposed to have a jury of our peers. Right. And uh, Judge Robert H. Golmar was presiding. Uh, Gein was found guilty by Golmar on November 14th. 
A second trial was held to deal specifically with Gein's sanity. After testimony by doctors for the prosecution and defense, Golmar ruled Gein not guilty by reason of insanity and ordered him committed to the Central State Hospital for the criminally insane. So back into, back the, into the hospital. He goes. And that's where Gein spent the rest of his life. Uh, Judge Golmar wrote, in quote, Due to prohibitive costs, Gein was tried for only one murder, that of Mrs. Warden. He also admitted to the killing of, Mrs. of Mary Hogan. So he admitted to two deaths. Mm-hmm. He was tried for one death. He admitted to another. If you add his brother into that, that's three. And I believe when you talk about mass murderers versus serial killers, the definition is is a mass murderer kills a bunch of people all at once and stops. A serial killer kills a bunch of people over a series of time or a period of time. And so technically he would qualify if he's responsible for his brother's death. If the magical number is three. Now, one thing we hadn't touched upon and it's cannibalism. He's field dressing these people out it, it seems obvious that it was there but it was never you know he's not doing yeah. too well financially obviously there was mentioned that part of the flesh off of one victim was there by the stove when yeah. it was found like in a ziploc bag it seems that he had to have been involved in that but it's never really stated that he nobody did. yeah he never and, really and again, confessed you're never to gonna it. know if he did or not but it, during under the pretenses I would almost be shocked with all the things that he did do if he didn't partake of cannibalism. Yeah, you would think, I mean, as gruesome as it sounds, you would think that would have to be part of it almost. Yeah, why would you, I mean, you put your mind in, in, in the headspace of a serial killer, which uh, is dangerous. And you don't yeah, want to do, do that. that. <laughs> but why would you dress something out if you're not going to, you know, uh, some questions are left better. Yeah, answered, you don't really, I, believe. I don't think you need the answer to that. <laughs> So, after his death, Gein's house and his 195-acre property were appraised at $4,700, which seems crazy low. It does to me, too. And and if you account for inflation, that'd be equal to about 42000 in 2020 terms. So, it does the, seem low. The house was there, uh, from the pictures I saw, literally of the auction, there was at least three barns, you know, yeah. outbuildings of decent size. And, and maybe it would be the reputation of the property that affects the price, too. Maybe. But that being said, they had a huge turnout for that auction, but there was a little bit of a twist the night before, I believe. Well, his possessions were scheduled to be auctioned on March 30th of 1958, and, and it was concerned that obviously there were rumors that the house and land could become a tourist attraction. The locals did not want that. Yeah, they could literally, like, the new owners open the house up for tours, and yeah, that's not what the town wanted to be known for. Yeah. Early on the morning of Mar- March 20th, the house is destroyed by fire. Oops. Though. A deputy fire marshal reported a garbage fire had been set about 75 feet from the house by a cleaning crew who were given the task of disposing of garbage. That hot coals were recovered from the spot of the bonfire, but the local fire investigator did say that the fire did not spread along the ground to the location of the house. Hmm. So arson, of course, is suspected. Unfortunately, the house totally was engulfed and burnt down before they could get that out. Doesn't that... Okay, again... Doesn't this sound familiar? Yeah. As in local yeah. local news. So it's kind of a weird parallel here. Yes, it is. The official cause of the fire is never determined. Uh, when Gein learned of the incident while he was in the hospital, he just sort of shrugged and he's like, just as well. You know, Gein's 1949 Ford sedan, which he used to haul the bodies of his victims, sold at public auction for $760, uh, 6800 in 2020 ter- terms. And it was sold to Carnival Sideshow operator Bunny Gibbons who charged carnival goers 25 cents admission to see Ed Gein's murder car. And it goes on tour. Gein himself died in the Mendota Mental Health Institute due to respiratory failure secondary to lung cancer on July 6, 1984. So he lived quite a while and and, and died, I mean, you know, 
80s. In the 80s. So yeah. he lived longer than you would have thought. Uh, he was 77 to that point. Uh, souvenir seekers have chipped away pieces of his gravestone at the Plainfield Cemetery, and the stone itself was eventually stolen in the year 2000. It was recovered in June 2001 near Seattle, Washington. It was then placed in storage at the Washara County Sheriff's Department. Uh, the grave site now is currently unmarked, but it is not unknown. Gein is interred between his parents and his brother in the cemetery. Now back to the auction. Uh, I saw some online photos. That was a record auction for attendance. There, They showed the fields around there, and there was just cars after cars. And, you know, as the, as the townspeople were kind of reluctant and fearful of, it seemed like there was a lot of those people that showed up. And yeah. people were even asking... I'm kind of ad-libbing here, but hey, would that lamp made out of human skin possibly be for sale at the auction? You know, there was that type of well, of, of questioning. Things like that sound gruesome. Now, I'm a, I'm a heavy metal fan. Uh, when I went to OzFest, oh, it's almost 20 years ago now. You're Korn, showing your age now. Yeah. Corn <laughs> was one of the bands there, and Jonathan Davis has a touring museum of the macabre, if you will. Yep. And he has things like, you know, art done by serial killers and like different... Oh, there's definitely a niche for that. There's a market for that. People definitely would have spent good money to get some of Gein's possessions. Yeah. And of course, as you said, all of that, the police had taken in. So obviously none of that was None of those things were going to be there. At the auction. But the point was there was thousands of people there trying to buy up any little piece. So already, I mean, just years after this took place, the auction, and already, you know, these whatever you want to call tourist seekers, serial killer collectors uh, were there. And, you know, there's a lot of speculation if it was arson or not. And, you know, quite honestly, I would say someone in the town knew exactly what happened there. Yeah. And they didn't want their town to be remembered as that. You know, even to this day, they say there's a lot of people that, that make that trip and they'll drive by and take pictures of the field where the house stood, you know, and this kind of thing and try to find the grave. But, uh, you know, again, like that statement where they would come through to the restaurant, I'll have the Ed Gein special. You know, yeah. it's just like people are so the locals don't want that. inconsiderate. They don't want to be remembered for that. And and the fact that that's the kind of, you know, like, okay, I, I, I would be lying if I said I didn't have an interest in serial killers. But again, to be disrespectful to the people who have who've lost their lives. You know, he, he killed people. Yeah. He he did he maybe didn't kill a lot of people, but he still killed people. Desecrated people lost graves their lives. Of, of their loved ones. Yeah, he, he desecrated graves, which, you know, depending on your own feelings, you know, either the body is just a, a vessel or whatever, but it's still the remains. Someone's family, yep. someone's someone's family member, someone's mom or sister or whatever, he, he violated that sanctity of the grave. Yep. So, you know, you, you shouldn't be celebrating that. No. We started this off with, with Gein's influence on popular culture you know he, this story kind of first became popular in 1959 with the novel psycho by robert block and you can see he was kind of a local guy too to yeah. the area i believe and you can see the some of the parallels between you know norman bates and his attachment to his mother and if i you know he kept his mom's body in the basement and all that uh i i would post some spoiler warnings but if you haven't seen psycho by now you're a little behind <laughs> and there's even the series that came out norman yeah. bates and now, uh, this story has been loosely adapted into numerous films, uh, including Deranged in 1974 and The Light of the Moon in 2000, which was released in the U.S. as the Ed Gein in 2001, uh, Ed Gein, The Butcher of Plainfield in 2007, and Ed Gein, The Musical, 2010. The Musical. <laughs> what? And then obviously served to inspire Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses and its sequel, The Devil's Rejects. Rejects. yep. 
Uh, and he's, Ed Gein has served as the inspiration for many notable fictional serial killers. Norman Bates from Psycho, Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw, Buffalo Bill, Silence of the Lambs, uh, Dr. Alfred Thredson in the TV series American Horror Story Asylum, mm-hmm. and even in the, the novel American Psycho, Patrick Bateman is allegedly quoting Ed Gein when he says, you know what Ed Gein said about women? He said, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part of me wants to take her out, talk to her, be real nice and sweet and treat her right. And the other part wonders what her head would look like on a stick. Now, that quote is not Ed Gein's quote. It actually is, uh, Ed, it belongs to Edmund Kemper. You know, Gein was, was, you know, you see the pictures of Ed Gein. He looked just like a local farmer type. You know, yeah. you'd, any, you, you'd see this guy he's sitting at a diner in any small town in in America, where you got a lot of farmers, maybe a pair of coveralls on and a yeah. vest or something, and a, and a ball cap on his head, and yep. just kind of, you know, sun weathered and a jovial type of guy, kind of jokingly, and, and even in the courtroom there was pictures of him, and I mean he was just dressed regular, leg crossed over the other one, seemed very relaxed. And, it, yeah, if you'd have seen him in a restaurant or walking through Walmart, you'd have never given him a, a second glance. Now. Ironically, there was, of course, a lot of interviews with people, you know, in the years following. And, and uh, some of those people are still alive that, you know, of course, remember Ed. They were young children at the time. But a couple of the uh, women in town did kind of come forward and said there was something about his eyes that kind of give them the creeps. They never really said much about it because their parents or whatever knew the family. And they're like, oh, no, he's, you know, he's fine. So it was kind of that peer pressure. Yeah. Some vibes were going off, but uh, they were said, oh, no. Again, he was just a common guy. Again, many people that they interviewed, uh, he was very well liked, very well trusted. If they needed some work done around the house or maybe at their at their mom's yeah, house or was, whatever, he's the guy to get. He was get. a handyman around town, and, and him know. and his brother were trusted. And, and, and He did painting. He did roofing. Yeah. He, he did decks, uh, mowed lawns you know, babysit children, which that part's really kind of creepy and scary in its own part. But, you know, again, he, he was a trusted man of the area. And while he didn't live right in town, you know, he kind of lived out outside, but, uh, he would make several trips into town and, and got along with everybody. It seemed. Yeah. I mean, it just goes to show that you never really know who's living next door until, until something happens. I mean, I, I remember my brother asking me, what do you think about these things that are happening you know, here in the news, was it uh, the Windyville area, I think? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that's some real Texas Chainsaw level stuff right there. Yeah. You know? And then, and, 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 you know, if you, by extension, you think Texas Chainsaw is inspired by Ed Gein. And, and again, you see some parallels, the property burning down, the body dressed out. Yep. Were these guys trying to duplicate what Ed did? Or were these guys just coincidentally duplicating what happened? Well, as we said, maybe in time, uh, we may, may get into that story because it doesn't get much closer to us than, than that. And, That's and we literally be, like 20 miles yeah, away from us. We want to be us. respectful of the people that were involved. Again, people lost their lives, people yes. lost loved ones, and it, it's it's a tragedy. But it uh, is something, obviously, that's brought FBI to our little town here, and, yeah. and it's, it's shaken all of us up uh, in the vicinity. But I want to give a shout out to a listener here. I told my son I would do this. He goes to college up there in Columbia, and his friend Isaac Jensen apparently listens to our podcast. Hey, Isaac, thank you for listening, buddy. <laughs> we, we know at least one person is listening to us. <laughs> So we just wanted to give him a shout out uh, and let him know that we appreciate him listening. And if he can spread the good word, like we said in the last pod, like we said in one of our earlier podcasts, we'd love to get invited to something. So the more popular we get, the more likely we can be invited. And again, we do have a Facebook page. You can find us at Nightmares on the Lost Highway and uh, feel free to uh, 
communicate with us there, suggestions, um, whatever you want to share with us, share your own stories there. Um, and we try to post a few things over there from time to time. We, we don't let out spoilers until we drop our episodes, Yeah, but, uh, uh, we, we do kind of share a little bit more insight on our Facebook page well, than what we do here on the podcast. Occasionally, we we put up links to weird articles or, or things. Saw your your little alligator mutation yes. fishtail. Fishtailed alligator? Yeah. yeah. So It's a um, thing, apparently. Yeah, we're, we're out there to be interacted with if you want to drop us a line. and So this is just yet another example that uh, real-life horror stories are actually sometimes more real than what you could ever conjure in your dreams. And this is exactly what you can expect on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks for listening, folks. Especially you, Isaac. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, London, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and we'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.